with this this piece of like work is just something like I'm, I, I, I take a lot of pride off. Not because, you know, like mapping school itself is very challenging, but it, the, the idea or the mission behind this, this work is to put every schools on the map so we can connect school to internet and can connect kids to the internet and uh, just like to mitigate the educational resources Hello, welcome to the Degrees of Freedom podcast. This is an eight-part series where you hear from scientists who are doing impactful work in spaces beyond academia. I'm your host, Chris DeHazenkope. For the first two episodes, I'm going to give you some background on the podcast and why I'm making it. I'm a former academic. I got my PhD in atmospheric science, and I worked in a few different sectors over the course of my career. I've been a high school geometry teacher in a public school, I've acted as an advisor to U.S. federal agencies. Um, I've started up a nonprofit, and I consider myself a social entrepreneur of sorts. Um, and at various points, I've been asked to talk to groups of early career scientists about my alternative career post-PhD. Uh, and you know, I have to say, I, I find that phrase super problematic. Uh, really, the whole concept of that phrase alternative career. I think it I think it has tunnel vision baked right into it. I mean, I don't know if if I ate an apple for breakfast and insisted on going around calling everything else I ate all day alternative food, my guess is you might think I was a little close-minded to other foods besides apples. Uh, instead, I've, I've thought of my science degree as enabling this giant map of career possibilities uh, rather than than this tunnel view. Uh, and, and science academic jobs are a specific place on that map, but, but there's been many other places that I've been grateful uh, to, to have experienced. So the point of this podcast is twofold. One, to offer some perspective, uh, to just illustrate how very large the map of possibilities is for someone with a science degree seeking impactful and meaningful to them work. Two, uh, to elevate the idea of careers beyond science academia and motivate you to explore them if you're inclined. Genuinely, academia is competing for you and your science degree with a lot of other sectors where you could do meaningful work. Again, that map of possibilities is, is big. And a word on what this podcast isn't. This podcast isn't meant to give step-by-step -step resources on how to break into other fields. You will hear resources and programs mentioned by guests that they went through, uh, which are recorded in the program notes and are also on exploredof.com. Uh, folks give advice or share what they wish they'd known themselves earlier in their career. But this is mainly a podcast about people's stories, their backgrounds, their science degrees, the jobs they've had, and how they've wound these three things together to build careers that ultimately they find satisfying. I hope you enjoy. In this first episode, I talked to Chung Feng Nana Yi. Nana got her PhD in Ecological Economics from the Chinese Academy of Sciences in 2012. Today, she's a machine learning engineer based in Washington, D.C., where she leads up a team of developers at a digital agency called Development Seed. Development Seed's a company that does a lot of different types of work that often overlap with international development. For example, in the interview, Nana mentions this project that's just really elegant in its simplicity that she's been working on there, where they're identifying and mapping schools across the world by applying artificial intelligence to satellite data. 
They're working with UNICEF and a satellite company called Maxar, trying to answer this super straightforward but really important question. How many schools are there in a given region and where specifically are those schools? You can imagine you need to know that answer to basically have a starting point uh, for, for any work at scale to improve educational systems. And this kind of work resonates with Nana's own background, as you'll hear. She grew up in an ethnic minority community in an isolated location between China, Myanmar, and Laos, where educational resources were scarce and where the community highly valued education. And I think that's what captivated me about Nana's personal story and career path. It's, it's so clear in talking to her that what she does now, how she applies machine learning to geospatial data, uh, speaks so clearly and is so well aligned with her values and specific sense of mission. So I think you'll really enjoy hearing her story. And one last logistical note before we dive in, Nana mentions several organizations and shares resources related to her work now and, and that have helped her through the transition into her position as a software engineer. I've thrown these in the episode notes as well as a few other references that may be of interest. Hi, Nana. Welcome to the podcast and thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. So before we get to the heart of your story, how's it going? How's everything at Development Seed? Um, it's been um, doing very, I'm, being, uh, I, I'm doing very well, actually. Um, so I start as a, a machine learning engineer. And, you know, like this is kind of like my full time, like first full time job uh, in the States. And uh, basically coming without any um, expectation. But so far, like been working with a lot of like brilliant minds, a very um, cautious, very um, talented, and also like very hardworking uh, co-workers, very thoughtful, um, like who always is thinking about the bigger picture, like how, what kinds of like positive impact we can make uh, in this world. And that is just like fascinated, like at a daily basis to me. So I enjoy it very much, uh, learning uh, new things every day from everyone like I work with, talk to, and constantly being inspired. So, you know, like I feel pretty lucky, like first full-time job in the States and working with amazing people and doing a lot of like impactful work. Yeah, so doing very well. That's awesome. Could you give folks a sense of what Development Seed does and uh, uh, what you're doing right now as a machine learning engineer? Yes, uh, Development Seed is uh, quite a small team. We are uh, for more kind of like uh, 46 engineer, developer, uh, designer, rocky scientist, musician, whatever you can name it. Uh, people are just very talented. And we work a lot with uh, Earth observation uh, data, uh, applying a lot of uh, compute, uh, cloud computing, um, uh, geo AI, and just uh, general like Earth analysis uh, technique to the Earth's observation to extract insightful and meaningful data layer to um, people who are working to make uh, actual impacts on the ground. Like, for example, uh, World Bank, uh, UNICEF, that, you know, like UNDP, uh, USGS, um, USAID, like people actually like go out there and make impacts on the ground. And, Yes, being being just like doing a lot of uh, 
data archiving, um, data uh, analysis, um, building sort of like impactful uh, developments of uh, data visualization tool that can actually help people to see the data from a different perspective. Uh, that's uh, the work like development C is doing. And, you know, we've been in the business for more than 17 years and working with over 30 uh, partners. So being just like a great to, to working on very diverse uh, project so far. Yeah. Um, so now you use machine learning and data science to do all kinds of impactful projects, especially in international development spaces, but you're also an ecological economics PhD. Um, and, and that's a pretty unique career path. So sort of backing up from all of that, um, I, I also understand your childhood and your parents' example has been very influential on you. And so I wondered if you could talk a little bit about your childhood and, and your, their, your parents' influence um, in that part of your path. Yes, yeah, so uh, I am Chinese, but in the sense of um, I am actually like Thai, it, it's called Thai Lu or Dai in Chinese culture, and we are ethnic minority, and we I don't grow up like a speak Chinese, and we are kind of like uh, culturally very close to Southeast Asian, like people who live in the mountainous area, you know, and don't, very isolated tribe uh, in the sense, if you would say. Um, I don't grow up speaking Chinese. Uh, when I went to Chinese school, uh, when I was like six or seven, uh, start from uh, first year at the primary school, I don't speak Chinese at all. All my classmates, it's just like kids from the, the same village or adjacent village. Um, we don't have like proper classroom and all this class, classroom was built by the donated wood board by the parents. And it's actually built by the parents. And at that time, our after class or after school activity is actually digging our own playground. <laughs> no shoes, of course, <laughs> and uh, no roads at all. And I didn't see my first like chunk, chunk or car like until I was like 10 or something like that, you know? And uh, at, as crazy at that time, we think like, the gasoline smell is like so unique. We actually run after the car. <laughs> and it's just like, you know, when I look back, it's a very different sort of like um, environment that I grow up. Never, never thought of like, we are really poor because we are just like running around in the tropical jungle and either like, you know, like swimming in the, in the uh, water, like river or catching fish and just do all sort of like activity. And sometimes, you know, you just like, your parents never seen you, like you just disappear in the jungle for whole days. And there's so many things to explore, you know, like that's very exciting time. And my parents, uh, they didn't like have any opportunity to go to school at all. Like they don't speak Chinese. And at the time, you know, like it's the community is sort of like isolated from the mainland China as well. Until I think like 
probably like very similar to Tibet, like until like 1950s, like, you know, like Chinese government start to build roads into this isolate, isolated community. And that is probably the, the point that um, like the outside world know like we're existent. And my, chi my Chinese name, or if you call it Chinese name, is Zhuangfang Yi, and Yi is my last name, but it's a code because it's actually not a family name. It's a, like, it's just like a female, like who doesn't have kids yet. And then when I have kids in the village, I will be referred to someone's mom. So I will never going to have my own name after I have my my child, first child, especially. So that's how ancient our communities are. Again, like my parents never had the opportunity to go to school of, they, they went to school, but you know, like they, because they don't speak Chinese and they, 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 they now can speak Chinese because more communication like from mainland China and tourist market is really like just booming uh, the local economy. And also we are the kind of like very unique patch of the tropical regions in China. So a lot of uh, tropical fruits and vegetables are like exported uh, to mainland China. So uh, uh, I don't know, like I, 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 my my parents are just like very special and unique people to my to my mind. That uh, more than ninety eight percent of a population uh, I you know in the community like I was born to like never have opportunity to go outside of the community. But my parents like. Um, carry on a sort of like a mindset like if other people like Han Chinese or foreigner like can do such thing for example the, the case they will use is like invent TV <laughs> because that's uh, the most expensive asset we own like when I was like you know like 12 or something like that so they're fascinated by all this technology like exported to the, the local. And they was like, oh, why, you know, like why other people can do this and we cannot, you know? So it's just like, they, they are definitely uh, frontier or thinker that type of people in the community. And my dad, it just like all go out there and, you know, like he, he, he helped like homeless, people he taught them how to play chess and my mom uh, my mom become a rural doctor uh, because uh, we lost my grand grand grandpa when I was five uh, because he had a heart attack and you know like it just he just passed away and my mom was like oh you know like if I can't save my family like what's the point it's like you know like just stay quiet so she kind of like study uh, Chinese medicine at first and then she went to a kind of like international um, medicine education uh, program and she become like kind of like Chinese and Western 
hybrid uh, rural doctor and also a midwife in the village. And she just like go out there and help people a lot. And I think like they are kind of like outlier that they don't really care about like how other people see themselves, but they just like want to be a good person that contribute to the community. And that's just like inspire me a lot, a lot to see like, you know, like beyond our own problem, but uh, instead, like sometimes you need to put other people's need first. And I remember like my mom would go out uh, even like monsoon season, like, you know, like storm landslide, go out there, carry vaccine to a different village. And uh, I remember one time she come back like covered by mud and blood because her <laughs> bike was like dislocated when she's like, you know, like kind of like uh, going down the hill. And I don't know, she she's just like very motivated person. Like she never thinks like, you know, like she's a woman or she's a girl and she always like thinks like if men can do it like she can do it too and that's that's the mindset like I I grow up as well she's like you are the human being first and if other people can do it you should you know think a way to solve a problem as well yeah so anyway they don't go they didn't go to school but they they are very inspiring uh, characters in my life yeah they, they sound uh, like incredible folks and, and the kind of people that looked for gaps in their, their life or their community and then figured out exactly. a way to fill them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what was your path? So to, to, to when you got your PhD, what did that path look like? Was, um, was there a pipeline from your school system to, to university or how did, how did that path happen to, to both, I guess, your undergrad and then eventually your PhD? Yeah, um, that's a great question. I was, uh, I studied geography in in university. Um, it's quite kind of like a famous university in China called Sun Yat-sen. And especially for the geography department, it's quite kind of like a top uh, geography department in China. And at that time, you know, like again, because my cultural identity that um, I always know that I am not completely Chinese and uh, I'm always like curious to learn about like about uh, beyond the, the Chinese culture as well as trying to like kind of like digging into my roots. Uh, so I want to um, go beyond that uh, to study sort of um, multiculture and how I bring my definitely like my geography background to study like how this culture uh, geography as well as landscape uh, geography like you know like shape uh, people's mindset also their life the lifestyle and the way of their living so luckily we have a Chinese Academy of Sciences one institute, uh, one institute that study tropical ecology, like ne- just next to my parents' place, is like two two kilometer like away, and you know like my mom's just like, 
being so close to uh these kind of like institute and she always like also like admire like how scientists like you know just doesn't look like a farmer <laughs> that's her first impression and they're always like doing some amazing work and she's she she has kind of like a dream for her child like one of them is going to uh, be one of the scientists and uh, I guess it's kind of like long calling for me um, I, I've been working with those scientists as well in the past and uh, to fulfill my mom's dream I was like oh you know guess what I'm finishing my uh, university and I'm looking for another part so I probably should talking to someone in the in the um, research institute called Shishuang uh, Tropical Botanical Garden um, professor over there. And because you know, like my mom just like very outspoken and outgoing, and a lot of friends. She has a lot of friends in the institute, and then she just connected me to one of this uh, director in the institute, and we start talking. And they hire a foreign um, scholar that is the first, kind of like first generation that Chinese uh, Academy of Sciences opened up and hiring a lot of like foreign uh, scholar uh, to enrich, you know, Chinese Academy uh, talents pool. And uh, Professor Chuck Cannon at the time that he's the first introduced to um, XTDG, Xishuangbanna uh, Tropical Botanical Garden, and they was like, "Oh, do you get? Do you want to talk to him? Seems like he study landscape ecology and evolutional ecology. That might be a a good match for you to come back to to Chinese Academy of Sciences." And then, you know, uh, of course, like I didn't speak English at all. I don't even know how to write. English email at that time <laughs> but uh, yeah very lucky that uh, I got to be his first PhD uh, students in Chinese Academy of Sciences and yeah it just like from there um, my my kind of like career path were just like took took off that you know he he was the first uh, professor Cannon was the one like who kind of introduced me to international research community and I got to be exchange student at the uh, University of Cambridge and East University of East Anglia in UK and I got to you know have a conversation with the biggest name um, the, the scientists like have the biggest names in conservation and that is definitely like kind of like mind opening and eye opening experience to me, like go to a different country actually and listen to what actually people care about, you know, like I, and also uh, put my own perspective in the context that I am a native or indigenous people and how other people like internationally or Western a scholar think about this problem and how should I solve the problem like from my own culture and from my own people's perspective. Then, um, you know, like, um, because I study like ecosystem services evaluation that 
um, we're just like trying to um, sort of like quantify how ecosystem services should be evaluated in uh, mandatory uh, contents, right? Um, I don't know, like I, I love a lot of part of the research, but I also like see from my own perspective, like I grow up never put the value and price on the nature. And that is something like not right to my cultural context, but that is something like, you know, like the way people should see or should evaluate ecosystem uh, services and what we actually get from nature. So I think that is the first conflicts like come into my mind. Like I had a little bit struggle, like trying to understand the research uh, context, but also like um, there's a definitely a fight from my own culture that I don't, I don't know if it's right to put many value to the ecosystem uh, services and yeah so that's that's kind of like the awakening um, moment for me that I might be uh, I might looking uh, things from a different perspective if that makes sense. Yeah and I, I was actually just about to ask you sort of your if you had a one or a series of aha moments uh, in, in eventually moving away from more academic work towards say, uh, applied work or building tools or applying machine learning to to problems. Um, yeah, were there any other aha moments or thought processes in your mind uh, in, in that shift? Yes. Um, so at a time, like when I trying to put the money tax on the ecosystem services, um, this um, also the context from like local government official, like I work a lot with just from like lands, uh, quantitative uh, ecology perspective that, um, you know, like people need to sustain the livelihood, uh, which means uh, they just need to plant high value uh, cash crops. That is uh, one way, right? Another way is like from uh, scientists who study purely like ecology just doesn't agree with it because, because they think like local government or gov government officials like looking at the shorter, shorter vision, a higher shorter vision or shorter, um, <clears throat> shorter, I don't know, like shorter uh, eyesight for, for instance, right? And there's a lot of like uh, conflicts among, or they just like don't ever have a common language to communicate, um, to to solve the problem basically. And farmers, of course, like you know, like like my dad and mom, like wouldn't care about like how much money I put on water, you know. And that is not like solving the problem. The problem is they want they want to have like enough food for us and uh, enough money to send us to school. So um, this is the moment, like, I think we should provide tools and also like data to people that can open up the conversation among them. I, I think that's, that's when the time, like, I think like quantitative um, analysis is more important to actually like provide people enough information 
to bridge uh, this kind of conversation, right? Like, for example, like I need to present to a local official and scientists, like how much actually like farmers are earning from the crops. And again, like, you know, like I need to present the result to farmer, like seeing like, okay, now you cut down this piece of forest and that's fine. But if you just like, you know, keep cutting down all the forest, like nearby village already run out of drinking water and that is the problem, like you, you're going to run into, right? Like, so these kind of like conversation like need to happen and need someone who can looking at the problem from a different perspective and quantitate, quantitate them in a way that people can understand and can can have a conversation. So I've been doing a lot of like this kind of uh, large scale geospatial analysis at that time, and but we didn't call it like machine learning, right? <laughs> at the time, like you know, like uh, not no such a fancy word, machine learning, but a lot of like um, quantitative uh, analysis as well as communication, like among those three stakeholders and how to help them understand each other's perspective and uh, problem is, itself. And that is definitely a aha moment to me that um, that is actually like, you know, doing a lot of like and spatial uh, analysis is something like I enjoying and also like communicate the result back to people. No, that all makes a lot of sense, and I I fully agree with it. I think uh, it makes me think a little bit of an aha moment uh, that I had, which was watching uh, the impact of a, a single monitor and its air quality data on a rooftop for a community um, versus my, at the time, uh, research, postdoc research, uh, which was very sort of in the weeds and would be published uh, and maybe maybe ten people <laughs> will read it or cite it. Um, meanwhile, this this simple uh, this simple instrument that someone else sets up uh, that isn't rocket science whatsoever would be so much more impactful. So it's 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 a uh, uh, yeah very different scales of 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 um, impact and, and in, in different ways. But uh, I, I hear I hear that aha moment of yours um, as well. Yeah, we are kind of like on the similar trajectory. Yeah, yeah. Um, so of the work you've done so far, uh, what's what's the work you derive the most satisfaction from that you've been most proud of in your career? I, I think um, the first projects I start at, at Development C, and that is what I was hired for, is to map school for UNICEF. And at that time, you know, like, um, of course, like I'm not like a um, like rocket deep learning scientist, like out of like study like human and human and computer brain hybridization or something like that. You know, like I was like very new to machine uh, deep learning technique, but um, that is like that sort of like really interesting, re really interesting research question to me that how can we fund schools from high resolution satellite imagery, right? That is, when you think about it, it's like school, they look very different from region to region, 
even like from urban to rural and from country to country, like how can you design a algorithm that can recognize school features from high resolution satellite imagery. But, you know, I'm just like all up to the challenge and uh, solving a small problem. Uh, at that time it was more kind of like exploratory um, research with UNICEF. And we just see like how, how, how that can go, how far we can go. Um, I was actually mapping schools in Liberia and later like UNICEF decided like this is the way like we can scale up uh, school mapping and then we actually develop a solid uh, machine learning or deep learning uh, methodology uh, in Colombia and it's much larger area and much uh, much diverse uh, school and school features in the country. And I'm, I'm just like very lucky to, again, to work with the most brilliant mind and people who has, has you know, like longer vision and believe in me that I can do it. And working with um, DevC data team, like who are just like, you know, like they, they've been mapping schools to open street maps and they know exactly like what schools look like and they were able to create a high quality training data set for school um, in Colombia, which is they, at that time, they just mapped like 80,000 schools in Peru themselves. So they know exactly like, you know, like what school going to look like in Colombia. So it's just like, you know, like some kind of like um, all this, um, uh, quiz credential. Um, I don't know, like how to use that word. All these things like come together, and it's like, oh, that is the moment that we we should definitely use deep learning and draw uh, Bollinger, right? Like a brilliant uh, developer and engineer at Devamsi. Like, oh, you know, like if we want to scan through the set high resolution satellite imagery in uh, Colombia, that is actually millions of uh, satellite imagery chips or tiles or windows. We need to fit things through the machine learning uh, model, like we train, like we know that perf perform really well, right? But we need a engineer engineering system that can actually do that and Drew was able to come in and, you know, like just like cranking things out on AWS, um, you know, uh, so we can, we can, we can utilize like AWS, AWS like brilliant uh, computing um, services, for example, like SQS and Lambda function, right? Like all sort of this like EKS and, you know, ECS and spin up a huge uh, workflow that we can scan through all this satellite imagery in Colombia and actually output the school tiles that we can ask, uh, go back and ask our development C data team to validate the, uh, the final result before we put the schools on the map. And we were able to find like more than like 7,000 uh, unmapped school like never been seen before, right? Um, even for the local or national educational ministry of uh, 
Colombia. So again, that's that's sort of like a fascinating to UNICEF uh, Office of Innovation. And then we were hired to map school in East uh, East and West Africa and Asia and more South American uh, countries. And yeah, with this this piece of like work is just something like I, I, I take a lot of pride off. Not because, you know, like mapping school itself is very challenging, but it, the, the idea or the mission behind this, this work is to put every schools on the map so we can connect school to internet and can connect kids to the internet and uh, just like to mitigate the educational resources and educational has been the most important elements in my life and I want every girl boys in the developing country like just have the you know fascinating uh, life experience I have like to see a different culture to talk to uh, people you know from a different um, cultural perspective and also and people who are just like fascinating a brilliant mind and you know explore this world and it, it you know it's just like I don't know it's it's kind of like uh, this work is bring me to a stage that I, I know this is hard problem to solve but also all this mission behind it it's just like really really fascinating to me and UNICEF teams has been really supportive and uh, really generous with the resources to to us. So, yeah, I really, I really appreciate all all the help and support along the way. Yeah, that's a super elegant, impactful project. I love the. It's not it's not a simple project, but I, I the 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 aim is very simple, right? It's a it's a very elegant and simple aim to know how many schools there are in, in a yeah. given area. And, and uh, yeah, that's beautiful. Uh, and I think a lot of people listening uh, who, who are aspiring data scientists say, uh, or want to get into machine learning, I think um, you're, you're kind of living the dream. <laughs> like you're, you're uh, applying uh, technical expertise to a very clearly uh, useful mission. Mm-hmm. Um, so could you talk in a little bit more detail how you how you got into machine learning and data science and any um any advice you would give to someone say with a academic or a scientific background who who wants to break into to that field yes totally i think machine learning um itself when i started like you know four or five years ago is still uh, relatively new um again i've been doing a lot of like geospatial um kind of like large scale geospatial uh, modeling for a very long time. So this kind of like quantitative way of measuring things uh, is wasn't like a, a big hurdle or big uh, like problem to myself. And I, I love to solve problem. But um, I think um, when I come to US, uh, you know, I being in the Chinese school system for my whole life, uh, one thing, um, it's, it's really interesting um, in Chinese culture, like question and problem, uh, the same term, 
it's 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 a wonty like you know like if you have too many questions that means you have a problem <laughs> <laughs> so not asking question not asking help is one of the mindset i bring with me from chinese education uh uh you know like uh system sort of and i i know a lot of asian and chinese students don't really ask uh, a lot of questions we just do things and i think that doesn't really matter to the western uh edu- like people who receive like uh, education the the education through western uh, culture or like from like asian culture or from other side of the uh, other different like culture background the first thing is you just need to need to ask question ask to help and again right like i don't have a solid deep learning uh, background what i need to do is just like a, a learning by doing and that's exactly what i was implementing like ask learn how to ask question and learn uh, how to reach out to people and just like you know be honest and humble with what you know and what you don't know and i think like people respect that a lot when when it's come to like you know like nobody want to see you struggle and don't ask question right like when people want to work with you because uh they see a different uh assets in 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 they believe in y- you so you should also like believe in yourself and asking for help and learning by doing is the best um things i can offer to people who wanna coming from um uh, you know academia to industry industry and academia paces like work pace is very very different and sometimes you know like we manage like in at dfcu like sometimes i'm working on like at that point like i i working on like five projects and that's 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 not going to happen when i was doing like you know like research like normally i just like working on maximum like two research projects but it's uh, in industry is really fast paced so if you stuck ask question and put yourself out there like if you learn something new share with people um at the same time like people will share what they learn from uh at the the work and you know this is this is kind of like uh a double sharing or kind of like knowledge sharing is like also like in really fast paced um yeah so uh be humble ask for help if you need it as well as put yourself out there like share share your knowledge and help other people to grow and that's how you're going to get help as well and yeah i i don't i don't have other solid things to share but that is just lesson i learned along the way you had mentioned a science data science program like boost camp are really helpful um you know like for example like the, the data incubator insights this kind of like uh data science program actually um only recruit like people who has a master or phd degree oh. in quantitative scientists science and um can 
can fund a work network for these people. And it's kind of like a smooth transition. Before I joined DevC, that's the program like I was in. I think that's good advice for for any stage. And I think it can especially be good advice for for those who have gotten their PhD in a particular very specific topic and feel very, you know, well-versed in that topic. And then when they go outside of of that field, it can feel very disconcerting to to suddenly not know, again, (laughs) everything about a topic. So I think your advice is really, um, really wise. Um, My my last question for you, uh, Nana, is you could go back in time and give yourself a pep talk uh, about your career at any, at any point. Um, when would you pick that to be in? What would you say to yourself? Um, do you mean like I should, what, what kind of like uh, advice I will give to myself? Advice or, or encouragement uh, that you think you might have really benefited from uh, when you were younger? Oh, that's a really tough question. Uh, I think one uh, first thing I am going to bring up is my mom's philosophy in her life. Like never stuck in the problem like present in your life today. Uh, she always like told me like you know like your life your lifetime is like um, tiny tiny ants like climb up the trees you know like sometimes you you will have like a storm coming on your face and high high speed winds and wanna blow you away but it's just like you know like it it's about the climbing up and seeing 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 uh, the view like from a higher uh, position and also like seeing uh, broadly and just like open your mind to, to, to kind of expect the challenge you are gonna face. And, but at the same time, like, you know, like when it's quiet time, like, you know, enjoyable days, you should just like enjoy it. So <laughs> I think I would, I would, you know, like, if uh if i was younger i would just like also like bear the the same mindset and also like you know like i'm expecting a child myself and that is something like you know like i am gonna uh, teach him or her uh, in the future that never uh stuck in your own problem and looking at the longer vision and you know like help people along the way uh, when you climb up your trees (laughs) <laughs> and enjoying the moments that you 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 have uh, to yourself, yeah, and do the right things you think is the right things to do, and don't let other people stop you uh, chasing your own path or your own dream, yeah. I think that's a, a great place to to leave off. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Nana. Thank you. Thank you for having me again. Thanks for listening to Degrees of Freedom. Go to explorediof.com to sign up and get notified for the next episode. Or subscribe to the program wherever you get your podcasts.